Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Stolen Goodbyes podcast with me, Karen Rice. This is being recorded remotely due to the COVID-19 restrictions. Today I'm joined by Emma Charlesworth from Kent, who lost her husband Stuart, who was known as Charlie, to COVID-19 on April 19th. He was just 45 years old. Welcome, Emma. Thanks, Karen. I'd just like to start by asking you what Charlie was like, both as a person and as a father. Um, he was he was just one of life's good guys. When you hear people talk about him, that's what he was. I am. Um, he'd gone through a cancer battle. So he'd beaten cancer when he was 26. He was diagnosed with testicular cancer. So he'd already gone through a battle in his life. And I think going through that when you're 26, 27, makes you just reassess life. And so he absolutely lived his life to the full. He absolutely he just wasn't happy doing nothing he needed to be seeing people or to be busy or to play games like he loved board games and I think he was just he was just one of those people that you wanted in your squad that's that's the best way to describe him I think is he he just had this energy about him and I think that the outpouring of love that's been seen since he died in April has kind of been testament to the man he was and the impact he had on so many people. Um, as a father, he excelled in that role. I think we have one daughter, we had a struggle to fall pregnant with her, we also lost another child. So she, she was our one shot at this, I think, if you like, and he absolutely adored her. He doted on her and it was probably, to be fair, the proudest thing he did was to be a father. That sounds wonderful. He sounds like he ate life. Yeah, he did. He really did. And I think that's why it's still so hard to comprehend that he's gone forever. Tell me, did you know him when he was 26, when he had the first health yeah, battle? I did. So he had his um, first chemotherapy session on my 20th birthday, actually. There was a slight age gap between the two of us. So he was under the care of St. Bart's when he had his chemo. Um, he had three intensive chemotherapy sessions. He had um, a massive, well, he had two operations, one particularly big to remove all of the tumors. And yeah, so yeah, I, I, I knew him then. And I think he did, and he would openly have said this himself. He came out of that experience a different person to the one who went into it. And how did you meet? How did you fall for each other? We met on the terraces of our local football ground. Um, my granddad used to take me down to the football. Um, I, he st my granddad started taking me down there when I was 11. Um, I actually met Charlie, I think I was probably about 15, 16 when I first met him. Um, and then we started dating um, for my 18th birthday party, actually. We got together the day before. I always used to joke that I just needed a date for my 18th birthday party and there he happened to be. Um, so, yeah, so that, that's how we got together. 
can you describe some of your relationship highlights or some of the memories that you look back on now anything that makes you laugh or a treasured time there's just I think there's so many I think when you're with somebody for that length of time there's there's just an awful lot of memories I think we've done I think this time last year and you know Facebook has a brilliant way of giving you your memories but this time last year we were in Bath um just the two of us and that was beautiful we'd never been to Bath before and we absolutely loved it um I think that's a more treasured one recent one I think there was just it's really hard to pick a few I think you know we had this thing around making when we had when we hosted parties I decided that I really liked and it sounds really silly but I it was edible eyes so making cookies and biscuits with edible eyes and he would always sit there and he would always do the research and I'd be the one going I want to do something for Halloween and so he'd be the one on Pinterest going what about this what about this and just totally indulging me in finding me these random things I can't cook so I never used to cook either so this has been a whole new experience for me and my daughter the last four months but so he'd do that and I think the silly things like that that we used to do we'd you know, we loved, we, we'd went, we went to Carfest, the festival that's organised by Chris Evans for the last couple of years. And that was, that was always really good fun for the three of us. I think this, it's really hard to just pick one or two memories. What do you miss about him on a daily basis? I miss him. I just miss him being here. I think one, I saw an analogy of grief um, recently that it's not doing something with that person that you miss, it's doing nothing with that person. And I think that's, I, when I read that, I was like, that just sums it up perfectly. You know, it's knowing that he's there at the end of the day, knowing that, and I think that's what I've missed over the last four months, it's, he's not there anymore. And yesterday in particular was a really weird day. It felt like a very normal day for myself and my daughter, to the point that it just felt like he might be away for the weekend that I almost in my head, I was like, oh, I should give Charlie a ring. I've not spoken to him for a while today. And then it kind of hit me that I was like, I, I can't do that anymore. He, it's not that he's away for the weekend. And so I think it's that, I miss, I miss his advice. I miss him being a sounding board. I miss him always having that sensible point of view. I, I just, yeah, but I think above all, it's that I miss doing nothing with him. Can you describe how he fell ill? Yes. Yeah, so, and a few people have said, where did he catch it from? I can't answer you that question to this day. I, I, I don't know. He came down with a temperature on Mother in Sunday. So 22nd of March. And um, he, he just had a temperature. And even then it was just a little bit of a, oh, here we go. And I was like, knowing you, you've probably just got flu at the time of a pandemic. Like, it's just a temperature. And he did a Facebook post about just a bit of a play on Mickey Flanagan to say that he was now in-in because he couldn't go out. Um, and that was the last Facebook post he ever did. Um, and so that was on Mothering Sunday. And then he, he just got steadily worse that week. I think the interesting thing for us was that he never had a cough. So he, he caught it quite early by... In, by comparison of where we're at today. And obviously the, the big symptoms at the time were a temperature and a cough. 
he, he never had a cough. Um, and so I think at the back of my mind was therefore, it's not going to be that serious. Yes, he's got a temperature. Yes, he's a bit under the weather, but he's not got the cough. That was all that was going through my head. And over the course of the week, he, he, he just went downhill, I think. He got was steadily more and more lethargic. He had far less energy. He wasn't really getting out of bed. But that wasn't to say he couldn't get out of bed. He just chose to stay in bed to be away from myself and my daughter. And he actually rang 111 on the Thursday because it wasn't going away. And because he didn't have the cough and that the, it was very much, you're just probably going to have to ride this one out, but call back if you get any worse. He, was, he came downstairs a couple of times to watch films with us. So he was able to get out of bed. Um, on the Saturday, I actually rang 111 um, again because he'd looked at me and said, I'm really scared. I'm not getting better. What's wrong with me? And so I called them again. But again, the questions were, is he so breathless he can't get out of bed? No, he wasn't. He wasn't that breathless. And I think the way I describe it was that you could see his chest moving, but he wasn't breathless. You know, normally when you look at someone, you can't see them breathing. You could see him, but he wasn't breathless. He had a little bit to eat, but he was, interestingly enough, he was starting to say that things didn't taste right and he had no appetite, which obviously now are being told as symptoms. And then on the Sunday, he came down. He was downstairs with us for a bit. He watched a Harry Potter movie um at 20 to 10 he was in the bathroom shaving and I said do you want me to stay with you are you, are you all right and he was like no 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 I'm fine it's like okay I think if I'd have known that was actually going to be my last conversation with him then I would have stayed and then about one o'clock in the morning I woke up and he was having the only thing I can describe it as was a panic attack it, he just wasn't making sense he was quite confused he, he was talking nonsense and I, I couldn't make head nor tail of it um, so I, I started to calm, I tried to calm him down. I gave him the TV remote. I said, look, and I took his temperature. And at that point, his temperature had come down. So I'd said to him, look, you're beating this. Your temperature's coming down. You just need to calm down. If I had a brown paper bag, I'd get you to breathe into it. Put the television on. He decided to watch Bruce Springsteen on Broadway. Um, and then I dozed off for another hour, hour and a half. It's all a bit of a blur, the timings. Then I woke up again, somewhere between three and 3.30, and he was very having what I thought was another massive panic attack. So I went downstairs to ring Medoc, and by the time I got downstairs, I decided to ring 999. I was like, no, there's just no point. But again, the call I made to the paramedics was, I think my husband's having a panic attack and I can't calm him down. I need help. Oh, as a, by the way, 111 think he might have COVID. Um, because even then, it just wasn't, it didn't feel real. I was like, oh, he's not got the cough. And, you know, the doctor the day before had said most people with the really severe symptoms come out within the first couple of days. So I was like, oh, it, it was almost a bit of an aside. Oh, one, one, one think he might have it. And then obviously we had to wait for the paramedics to be coming to the house all suited and booted. And I said to my daughter, it's going to be a bit like ET. They're going to come in with all the masks. I didn't know how else to describe it. I rang my mum in the early hours of the morning and literally rang her to say, you need to speak speak to Rebecca because I can't I can't do this um, and be with him um, and it was all just a bit of a blur and I think he then he walked out of the house to the ambulance and they'd brought a chair to carry him out and they said and he actually walked out of the house and again I clung to that in the first few days I was like he can't be that bad he's walked out of the house like he can't be that bad and the paramedics said give it a couple of hours and then ring A&E for an update, we just need to check on him. 
And so I rang A&E two hours later and it was then that I was told he'd been taken to ITU and had been sedated and ventilated. And at that point, it was just like, so I, I don't really understand what's happened. He walked to the ambulance. I think part of me, again, fully expected when I rang A&E, maybe naivety, I don't know. But I fully expected them to say, yeah, you were right. It's a panic attack. Can you come and get him? And so to then be told over the phone, no, he's been ventilated and sedated was, and he's in ITU was just, I, I wasn't ready for that. Shocking. What happened then? That, and that's when my whole life took on a very surreal element. I think it became a, it just became a waiting game. And I then spoke to a doctor a few hours later who basically gave me a bit of a rundown on where he was at. And for the next 10 days, I would ring the hospital when I woke up in the morning and I would ring them just before our daughter went to bed of an evening for an update and worked on the theory that if I didn't get an update in the middle of that, I was all right. If my phone didn't ring, he was doing what he needed to do. Um, they So when he'd been in for about ten, just over a week, eight, nine days, they were obviously becoming busier and they couldn't take all the calls. So then they, the hospital changed their policy to they would ring me once a day with an update. So it then literally just became that waiting game. You're literally just waiting for the phone to ring with an update. And I absolutely get it. They were run off their feet. They were fighting the battle, you know, for every one of me that was ringing, they had countless other people. So I, I totally understood that positioning, but that was really hard to just sit there and wait for the phone just to go. At no point did you have a conversation with him? No, I never spoke to him again. Um, never heard, After he left here, we never heard his voice again. We didn't speak to him. And then I think it must have been the Wednesday of the second week. So he'd been in for 10 days. They tried to do a tracheotomy or they did a tracheotomy to try and help with the breathing and to kind of take the pressure and to re reduce some of the sedation. And he didn't respond to that in the way they might have hoped. So we then, we then just carried on the waiting game. But by then, you know, he, he'd been on that, he'd been on that sedation. He'd been on the ventilator. You start to do your own research into what the chances and where it's going to go with this. Um, and I think the problem with COVID is there's still so much that's unknown about it. It was an unknown enemy at that time. And the way I describe it was that when he was fighting cancer, we knew what the enemy was. And it was like, right, we'll try this. If this doesn't work, we do this. If this doesn't work, we do that. Um, this we didn't know and the hospital were trying everything you know the calls I had with them they were doing everything they could but he just wasn't responding and they they didn't know why um, and then on Easter Sunday we had my I had my first really hard conversation with the hospital which was has anyone told you to prepare for him to never come home and I was no they hadn't um, and, and the consultant said, well, I'm going to have that conversation with you now. I need you to prepare for him to never come home. She said the next 24, 48 hours are going to be critical. And we'll see how he does after that. And, and that, that's a conversation. He'd been in hospital for two weeks, but it was still, you still, you know, people had said, oh, you know, Emma, Emma, where there's life, there's hope. And I think you always cling to that. Um, so to hear that just in the cold light of day was a really hard thing to hear on the phone. And obviously then having to go and tell our daughter was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Um, and then the following day, 
he had a slightly better day and that was the first time we were actually able to Skype him was the next day. So, so that would have been Easter Monday. We did the Skype calls. And how was that? So I did the first one on my own because I didn't know what he was going to look like. I didn't know I could, I, did, I needed to, to prep and there was just so much going on in my head. He just, he just looked like he was asleep. It was the weirdest thing. I, I, you know, I took a couple of screenshots of the Skype call and he just looked like he was asleep and he was just resting. And I think, and then from, from that day on, we were able to do a Skype call every day and the Skype angels as they became known they be, they became my lifeline to him actually and they were they were just phenomenal I um I can't praise them enough for the care and the love that they gave to me and our daughter like it was just it was just so much love and our, my daughter was very practical about it she was very much yeah I'll talk to daddy today because he might not be here tomorrow might he and you know that's that's her mentality and then we did a call with him on Saturday the 18th and he looks he looked a bit more tired but he had his eyes open and he was frowning at us and he was trying to mouth words um, and then I got a call later that afternoon to say he deteriorated so they'd had to resedate him and so I think in my head I was very much okay well how about we don't do the Skype calls anymore because I don't want to wear him out. And I don't want to tire him out. And then the Sunday, the 19th, I got a call in the morning and I can't remember exactly the words she used in my head. She said, he's going to, he's not going to make it. It's today or tomorrow. I don't know if she actually said that the nurse that's, and, but, but she told me in the morning that he wasn't going to survive and we, he was going to go. My gosh, that's so tough. And when you were, uh... Skyping was it a case of that you were talking to him and he obviously he could hear your voice he opened his, his eyes at one point but he wasn't yeah. really able to sort of it wasn't a two-way conversation as such no no it wasn't two-way at all it was us talking to him did he recognize could you tell that he there was recognition when you were speaking about things or when your daughter was on the phone yeah, and I think, you know, they'd said to me on the Friday, he was frowning and the nurse said that was because he could he could hear us and he, he, he knew it was us. I don't know. It's hard to say. I, I, you know, you have to go on the theory of what the medical staff are telling you and they, they were adamant he could hear us and we had to do everything we could. But, but obviously we'll never know if he could hear us or not. But it was, it was absolutely one way. And then tell me what happened then. So the day he died, as I say, we got that call in the morning. So I then had to go and offer Well, I had to go and tell my daughter what was happening. I was offered the opportunity to go and see him on that day. I declined and it wasn't. When I when I've spoken to people about this afterwards, they're like, oh, that must have been a heartbreaking decision to have to make. It wasn't. It was just a decision I had to make like that. I didn't have a chance. And the reason I declined was that I'd have had to self-isolate away from her for seven days because of the situation. We didn't know whether I'd had it, we didn't know whether I was immune. Um, and that, that was what the advice I was given was that if you come in today, you're gonna have to self-isolate away from her for seven days. I couldn't do that. I needed her around me, she needed me around me. So I, I said, no, I didn't go to the hospital. Um, they gave me the opportunity to have a last Skype call 
they they asked if we want if I wanted to or if I just wanted to let it go. So we did one last call. As luck would have it, my mum came down for a walk and had literally turned up on my doorstep as I got the first call from hospital in the morning. And so my mum then sat on my driveway for about three and a half, four hours that day whilst all this chaos was going on. And so, you know, we started to do the Skype call together. And then my daughter went off and was like, right, daddy, I'm just going to go speak to Nana for a bit. I've not got much to tell you. And so then she went off and just went on her scooter around our driveway and spoke to my mum. So I spoke to him on my own for a bit. And then at one point, I think it'd been about half an hour, the nurse came back and said, how are you doing, Emma? Do you want to make yourself a cup of tea? And I was like, yeah, that would be lovely, actually. And so she, she was like, right, off you go. I'll keep talking to him. And as I was in the kitchen, I could hear the nurse just chat, chatting away to him so he wasn't on his own and just talking about it all. Um, and then I came back and I spoke to her a bit more. Our daughter came back. She spoke to him a bit more than she went. I finished the call with him just on my own because there's also a point where you, you run out of things to say. There's only so much you can say. And, you know, one of the messages I was given was that don't tell him what's going to happen. So it's, it's quite hard to do that for a length of time. And then I think, I think it finished at about half past two and then he died at half four. That must have been surreal. Yes. And, and when I got the call, it's one of those things that, the call came and it was a bit like, what do I do with this information? And it sounds really silly, but it was a bit like, so what do I do now? My husband's dead. Well, so we were in the middle of watching, and this is just surreal, but we were in the middle of watching Frozen. So we just carried on. We just went back and just finished watching the film because I was a bit like, I don't know what to do with this information that I just went, right, let's finish watching the film and I'll just sit on it for a bit. And then, um, then I made, then I made the call to his dad and his two sisters. So I told them, and then I went, okay, we need to eat. <laughs> what do you want for dinner? You know, it was just this whole, this the whole world has imploded, but I was a bit like, okay, I need to feed you, what do you want? So it was a chicken nuggets and chips kind of evening. And at that point I'd, I'd made a decision and I don't know, things, all random things go through your brain, but I was like, right, I'm not gonna tell any of our friends until later tonight because they've all got children who are younger. So if I wait until all the children have gone to bed, that gives them all time to process it without in front, uh, falling apart in front of the children. I didn't know what else to do and then over the course of the evening, I made some more phone calls to family. And then I, can't, I don't even know what time it was, probably, I don't know, half nine, 10 o'clock-ish. I'd set up a WhatsApp group for friends to keep them informed all the way he was through, um, all the way he was in. And I put the message on there because I was like, if I ring people, people had, and people had said over the course of the three weeks he'd been in ITU, every time my name flashed up on their phone, it gave, they panicked because they didn't know why I was ringing. So I decided the, the nicest, nicest, I don't know if that's the right word, but the nicest thing to do would be to send a WhatsApp message and then they could all process it in their own time rather than with me at the end of the phone. So I sent out the group message to everybody and then did a very much, a, don't put anything on social media, I'm still trying to get to people. And yeah, it, it just went, it just went from there. How did your daughter take it? She... 
don't know. It's just, she has been phenomenal. And people talk about how resilient children are. And that I've seen that throughout. I've seen, she's just taken it on the chin. She's just been so pragmatic. I mean, she's lost her hero. That's what she's lost. She's lost her daddy. And every night since she's gone to bed in one of his t-shirts, she wears it as a nighty. She, she's lost. Yeah, she's lost her hero. And I think she's, she's had moments and she's had, she's had moments where she feels, it's almost as though she's angry, but she doesn't know why she's angry. And so she's angry about something else when you know that what's behind the real reason. She has had some bereavement counselling via creative therapy. So she, she, I, I made sure she had some of that. But she's just been, her, her take on it is that he, he'll always be with us. The stance she's taken is that he'll always be a part of us and he, he wouldn't want us to be sad. He'd want us to carry on doing things. You know, and a prime example, our friends invited us to go camping a couple of weekends ago. And immediately I was, I'm not ready for that. I don't want to do that. And I had a very honest and open conversation with her. And I said, I, I just think it'll be too hard without daddy. And her reaction was, it will be hard, but the longer we leave it, the harder it's going to get. And then we might never have fun, mummy. So I think we should do it. Very grown up. Very wise. Yeah. And, you know, people that I work with are just like, what were you reading her when she was three years old to have like this wise head on her shoulders? I don't, I don't know. I think it's just, I think, you know, she's, she's gone through a lot in her young years anyway. So I had a very bad bout of depression and anxiety a couple of years ago where I was in counseling for over four months. So she's not, she's never had the easiest ride. It's not as I jokingly laugh to her. I'm like, it's not all cupcakes and rainbows life. So, you know, she, she's had, she's gone through a lot already, but I think, I think there will be times in her future where it will hit harder for her than it will for me and vice versa I think we, we're just we're just navigating this one day at a time really tell me about the funeral I was very disengaged with the funeral I didn't want to know about it for the first for the first few days probably the first week I I just didn't want to know we were it was it was at the time where it was a maximum of 10 people um which was incredibly hard to pick 10 people a friend of ours is a minister so she did the service for us which was absolutely lovely because it was that personal touch she knew him she was able to speak about him and so that that was lovely and and it was her actually that made me start to think about it differently because she said lots of people will have the big service maybe in a church first and then they would go to a crematorium with immediate family only, just for a little bit. She said, you're just doing it the other way around. She said, start to think about it that way. You're just doing it the other way around. And so I eventually started to come around to the idea of the funeral. We had a number of people lining the street where we lived, and which was, which was lovely. There were far more people there than I was anticipating. I'd put a note in all of my neighbours' doors beforehand to say this funeral is happening, people will be here, they'll all be adhering to social distancing, but I just want to make you aware. And there were more people there than I anticipated. And then as we got to the crematorium as well, there were so many people 
all the way up to the crematorium. I, I was completely overwhelmed by it all. You know, he used to manage a Sunday league team and the football team were all there in their training tops. They'd put a big flag. I can't remember what it said now. I think it might have said SS. FC Sporting Sittingbourne Football Club legend with a picture of his face and RIP, this big flag that went up between two lampposts and then they were all there in their training gear. There were people from his work who had stood outside. It was just, it was just something else. And I can remember pulling into the crematorium just feeling totally overwhelmed by it all. And then, yeah, the I, I think the funeral, one of the, one of the good things about it was that we were offered the opportunity to stream it virtually. So everyone who hadn't been able to be there in person was able to, to watch it. And we had a lot, I had a lot of feedback to say it actually felt like they were there and actually it, they re people didn't feel weird being at the end of the computer screen watching it. I actually played him singing at his funeral. So he was in bands and he was a vocalist and I'd, I was sent a video of him seeing Fields of Gold the day after he died and so I had that made into an audio and he I, I had him singing um, which a number of my friends were like you could have warned us about that we, didn't, we weren't expecting that and I was like no I needed to keep something back and it just felt absolutely right for him to sing at his own funeral I don't know whether some people might find that weird but it just felt right and then my daughter and I did a reading as well but it, it was just very odd because then when you leave the crematorium, there's no wake, there's no everyone coming together. There's, there was none of that. It was, it was a bit like, right, that's done. Let's just go home now. How do you feel about the fact you didn't have a chance to say a, a goodbye, a proper goodbye? I think, you know, there's so much that you probably should say when someone's alive and you never think to say it to them. So... You know, I did, I did another interview with the hospital radio and he totally threw me with his question, which was, if you could say one last thing to him, what would it be? I'd, and, and I, I, you know, I came off that and I was like, I think I would just say thank you. Thank you for everything. Thank you for what you've taught me. Thank you for the support. I don't know. I think the fact we did the Skype calls every day for a week, I think helped because... I think if we'd never seen him again from the minute he walked to the ambulance, I, that must, and I know there's a lot of families that that's happened to. We, I consider us lucky with the Skype calls. I think that would have just been horrendous for him to have walked to an ambulance and then that's it. I at least, I at least saw him. I saw that he looked peaceful. We saw him with his eyes open on two of the days, you know, and so I think that helped to make it feel a bit more real. Whereas I think if he'd have just gone into that ambulance and we'd not seen him in the hospital and we'd not, and, and that might've changed my view on whether I went in on that last day as well. If I'd not been able to see him via Skype, it, I might've grabbed that chance just to go in, just because I think that's the hardest thing, you know, and, and to start with, when, when we were talking about the funeral, you're not allowed to see your loved ones in their funeral home. And there's just this element of, it's actually happening is like he walked he walked to an ambulance he's never coming home i don't get to see him and and dress him because obviously they're not yeah covid patients weren't allowed to be dressed either is the is this actually him that's gone i think is there anything that keeps you awake at night 
No, and I think, so I, I sleep really whenever, <laughs> to be fair, I can sleep through anything. Um, the, it, sleep is actually what kind of gets me through. I think the one thing, the, the, there's a few things that you kind of go over in your own mind and you're like, should I have, should I have done more? Should I have rung an ambulance earlier? Should I have been more insistent with 111? Should, I don't know. He wasn't, he wasn't displaying the serious symptoms. You know, I think that's the only other thing. I think the, the, the two questions is always that, should we have done more earlier? And I invariably land at, no, I don't know what else we could have done. We, you know, short of literally me taking him to A&E, where they may not have even seen him anyway because he wasn't displaying severe symptoms at that point. I don't, I don't think there's anything else we could have done. And I think the other, re the other hard thing that I, it's, I struggle to get my head around, and our daughter has said the same thing, it's where he got it from and why we didn't get ill. That's, you know, if ever you do have those random thoughts in the night and you wake up in the night, they're the ones that are there. He's, how did he catch it? Where did, where did this come from? How did this come into our lives? And I, that's hard to come to terms with, that you just don't know. What feelings are you left with now? It still feels, it still feels surreal. It's still, every, like I say, it's that, that yesterday I was like, oh, I could ring him. And then I'm like, no, I can't. You know, I think part of, there's part of it that whilst lockdown's been on and whilst we've been in this situation, I think there's an element that it feels like he's just gone away with work. And when this is over and when life goes back to normal, he'll come home. I think there's, there's a loneliness, I think. And it, I've got my daughter, absolutely, you know, and I would be... I don't, well, I don't know what I'd have done without her, but there's that element of I'm on my own now. You know, the decisions to make about schools and decisions to, or everything about her, that's all on me now. Um, so I think there's, yeah, loneliness, I think. If there's one message that you could share with the world, what would it be? This is real. This isn't made up. This isn't fabricated. and. I think, I think that the message is, it's not selective. It's not choosing its victims. You know, there was a lot in the early days that, oh, it's everyone with underlying health problems. Yes, he'd had cancer, but that was 19 years ago. Um, he had no underlying health conditions that we knew about. You know, there was no reason he shouldn't have got better. It's not selective. This, this disease and it, it's, yeah, it, it can affect literally anybody. And I think the message is that you have to take this seriously. It's not, it's not made up and it's, it's not gonna go away unless people do pay attention and do what's asked of them. Okay, Emma, thank you so much for um, sharing, sharing what you've gone through and your loss. It's very moving. Thank you.